Hey, everybody, and welcome to the most recent episode of the Project Liberal podcast. Um, today, we are joined by a guest that I'm very excited to speak to. We're going to talk about the case to be optimistic, why the current state of the economy is not as bad as you might think, and why there are a lot of things to be optimistic for in the future. Um, we are joined by Jeremy Horpital. Jeremy is a, an economist and the associate professor of the UCA College of Business. He's also the director of the Arkansas Center for Research in Economics. Jeremy, hopefully I didn't screw up the intro. I want to give you a second to introduce yourself. No, you did just great. Thanks, thanks, Josh and Jonathan. Great to be here with you guys. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how much I have to add to that. You know, I'm I'm a, you know, an academic economist, but also you mentioned I'm a director of a research center here, so I get to do a lot of you know student. Uh, we do student reading groups and speakers and things like that. Um, I get to uh, do a lot of media, including, you know, I think we'll talk about my social media, but I do a lot of local media here too, talking about Arkansas specific issues. That's what we focus on. Uh, I just, I just love, you know, using the economics I learned and we do in the classroom and through my research to try to bring that out in the broader world too. Um, I've been uh, at my current university for eight years, um, but uh, I've been, I got my PhD in 2009 from George Mason University. I've been I've been teaching at, at various universities since then. Um, and, you know, I did my undergraduate in economics. So I've been doing economics in, in some shape or form now for, um, you know, over 20 years. So just, you know, kind of live and breathe it every day and try to make it fun, but also to make it make it relevant. I think it's a lot of to a lot of people, even people that kind of follow the stuff closely. A lot of it does seem mystifying, especially yeah. if you start getting into the weeds of the data. So. Uh, and I know we'll, we'll probably talk about some of that today, but just trying to, you know, uh, communicate to people on their level and um, and try to also keep it fun for me. So that, that's what I do. Spend my day teaching and then, then jumping on Twitter. <laughs> I, I um, I'm going to mess up the quote, but I think it was Mark Twain, maybe apocryphally said, you know, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and so how do you, you know, on Twitter? Everyone's throwing out numbers that counteract each other, fight, you know, contradict each other. Um, some are just outright lies. Some have, you know, one variable that's missing that completely changes the story behind it. How have you kind of found yourself in a position to be kind of like, you know, you're the go-to source for me, at least. You're one of my go-to sources when I'm like, when I come across this statistic and I think, wait a second, this doesn't feel right. I can go to your page and look, you know, I'll search your, search your profile and say, uh, you know, whatever it is and try to figure out you know, what the story behind some of these numbers are. How have you kind of found yourself in that position? I think part of it is, you know, I am always trying to figure things out for myself. Like a lot of these things, when I go on Twitter to explain to people, like I myself didn't quite understand it. So I want to dig in and see what's the best data or, or different sources of data to answer a particular question. You know, I write for this, a blog called Economist Writing Every Day, and, and there's seven of us and we each post one day. And one of my co-bloggers, one time we were, we were having, you know, sitting down, we met at a conference and he said, I, I love your post because I can tell like you don't have a, a preconceived notion coming into your post. And the post is clearly just you figuring out for yourself, like what data can I find that can look at the different angles of this? And so I think, I know, I just, I just enjoy, you know, the process of trying to, trying to make sense of the world through data. And I think that, you know, so a lot of the way I, 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 do it is just by, you know, I'm figuring out for myself, you know, but then over time, you know, when this particular question comes up, I can say, oh, I know for that one here, here are the best sources. So, you know, I'll have it, you know, in my back pocket, but a lot of it is, you know, um, if there's a new question, like, you know, 
the question about crime rates, right? Like I'm no expert on crime, but you know, I, I know who to look to. I know what some of the good sources are with crime. There's like challenges of underreporting data and things. So like, you know, I, I know those, those exist. So, you know, for a question like that, that's, you know, I've, I've written blog posts about crime rates. I'm like, okay, what are the, what sources do you got to look to? What are the limitations of that data? And so a lot of it's just kind of me figuring it through on my own and then, and then showing people what I've learned. <laughs> got it. You had written actually on the economist writing which I would recommend for our audience to check out. You, I think one of the most recent posts you went, wrote was how the economy is doing versus how people think the economy is doing. Mm -hmm. This is the thing that I was hoping to kick us off on because, and we talked to Kathy Reisenwitz, who was a, a guest on our show last week about this very topic. Uh, it seems to me in the mind of most people, and this isn't even on Twitter or in the social media, this is what I hear from my parents and the friends I talk to in real life, everyone feels like the economy is doing really bad. Um, you know, I, and, and one of the things you outlined in this article was that, hey, the, that, that emotional feeling doesn't mesh with the facts. So one of the questions I was going to tee you up for, Jeremy, was to talk about the facts and help us think through, like, what exactly do you mean when, when you say the economy is doing better? And then I want to talk about why do you think people have such an emotional <laughs> disconnect? But can you tee us up for like the, the state of the economy now versus say like before COVID and before the last dip? Yeah, no, that, that's, that's a really good topic to get into. I think a lot of people have been noticing this lately that, you know, even as the, you know, the economy improves, as we see it in the data, a lot of people are still very pessimistic uh, about the economy. So you know, there's a, there's a number of things in there, but I think the first one is we can just look at, you know, broad measures of how the economy is doing, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, unemployment rate, or you can go beyond that and look at other measures of how the labor market's doing. You can look at, you know, GDP is the broadest measure of how the economy is performing. You look at all these and, you know, this post you mentioned, I went through them, I didn't quite know it was going to be this, but you look at a lot of these, you compare them, November, 2023 is the most recent data when I wrote that compared to November, 2019, a lot of these are like exactly the same to like the first decimal place, right? Yeah. Uh, all these different measures of how the labor market's doing. Um, and so, you know, in that post, I say, okay, all these broad measures say the economy is performing you know, almost exactly as it was before the pandemic. So then, well, it could be then that people feel pessimistic because, well, maybe, you know, various measures of wages or income or wealth haven't kept up, right? So it could be that, well, now the economy is growing, but, you know, wages are still behind. Um, so then in that post, I, I put together, you know, four or five different measures of wealth or income or wages, and, and all those are higher than they were in November of 2019 as well. Now, they're not much higher. And so you might think that, um, you know, maybe one of the challenges is that it's not, you know, uh, Wages weren't going up as fast as people would have liked. Um, but I think that, you know, all, you know, the, I think you've got the, the data up here now, right? So I uh, started off with the, you know, how people think about it. Well, people think it's much worse than November 2019, like much, much worse. Um, but, you know, all the data suggests it's, it's very close to what it was. Wages are up. Um, I even went into a little bit. Some people will say, well, what about, is this, is it just temporarily good because people are taking on more debt? Um, and people still sometimes see a chart or you see these charts of credit card debts is at all time highs, right? Well, with that, I'll say, okay, how do we contextualize that, right? The easiest way is to divide total credit card debt by people's annual income, right? Or how much they're paying on credit card debt by their income. And so those two measures at the bottom there look at total debt payments as a percent of disposable income or total debt as a percent of GDP. And these, again, that first one is to a first decimal place. 
the same as it was before the pandemic, right? So you have all this data looking almost exactly the same. You have real wages, right, adjusted for inflation being a little bit higher, not not super strong growth since before the pandemic, but it's not lower. Um, wealth is quite a bit higher, uh, yet on all these measures of consumer sentiment or just, you know, talk to your family over the holidays, people feel like uh, the economy is not doing so well, right? So that's kind of the data. If we then shift to why do people think this? I think there are, you know, a lot of good explanations uh, that, that capture part of it. I think number one is that maybe wages, you know, the cumulative growth hasn't been as fast when we adjust it for inflation. Um, I think actually we're pretty close to trend if you kind of projected a trend. I think really though, it's just the, the it, it is the cumulative effect of inflation. And I think that people see the prices going up, right? Like they observe that in their daily behavior. They don't really probably know what percent their wages have gone up. And they also don't know what percent the prices, they just know prices are up a lot, right? I mean, the latest one is orange juice. Everyone's like, oh, orange juice is now $7.50 a gallon. And it is. And, and you know, and orange juice prices are up a lot this year. Orange juice prices are up 36% the last year. But that's the outlier. <laughs> Overall, groceries are up less than 2%, right? So people can find the one that's way up. Uh, orange juice, it's like the new gasoline, right? It's way up. But gasoline's down, right? So you got to kind of look at all the data together. I think people tend to, you know, for various psychological reasons tend to focus on the one thing or two things they can find that look bad. They're not that good at judging in, in percentage terms, how much has my income gone up? The average person probably doesn't even know how much consumer prices have gone up in the past four years. They know they've gone up, but is it is it 20%? Is it 30%? Is it 50%? Like they probably don't even know, right? Because that's they only know the prices they observe directly unless you're following the consumer price index releases and looking at Fred charts every day like I do. Like you don't know exactly how much it's up. So I think it's normal that in a time when prices have gone up a lot, people aren't certain exactly how much they've gone up, that people probably feel like their wages haven't kept up with that. It's also true that for some people, wages haven't kept up, right? So if I say the median wage has kept up, that might mean that a lot of people below the median have not, uh, and they might feel pessimistic. And then some people whose wages have far exceeded uh, inflation, this will be especially people who have changed jobs in the last four years, they, they probably have a big increase in their pay, uh, but they may still feel for other reasons that it, it's not as good. Now, I, I conclude that post by saying that, you know, actually, even though people are pessimistic, they're less pessimistic than they were a year and a half ago, right? So as the data has gotten better and as we haven't had, you know, a major economic slowdown or recession, which a lot of people, including economists, thought we might have, um, you know, June 2022 is kind of the worst point as far as when people you know, judge the economy. So about a year and a half ago. That's also the month that inflation was at the highest rate. So that kind of all goes together. And as inflation has come down, people have gotten more optimistic, but they're nowhere near as optimistic as they were four years ago about the economy. Uh, there's some partisan aspect to this too. And you see this when the party in power, especially the presidency flips, Democrats and Republicans kind of flip how they view the economy. Like all of a sudden it's terrible just because someone we don't like is in office. And so, you know, that is part of it. Uh, Republicans seem to flip a little more in terms of it, it, the economy being good or bad when their person is not in power. So, I mean, some of the data is that. Um, but uh, even people who identify as independents are much more pessimistic than they were four years ago, uh, despite the data looking pretty similar, right? So there's, you know, and if we want to talk more about, about this specifically, this question, but I think that's how I kind of approach a question is say, you know, let's let's not just look at the price of orange juice, right? Let's look at wages. Let's look at all prices, 
let's see how people have done. Uh, let's see how the overall, you know, labor market is doing. Going, you know, going beyond just the unemployment rate. Let's look at other measures of how the labor market's doing, and then try to, you know, have a judgment on how things are overall. Um, of course, uh, well, I think it will be clear. Even if your listeners don't know me before today, I'm a very optimistic person about the economy. Uh, but I think there are always reasons for pessimism, um, and I, I could I could probably give you a list of a dozen things. Right? That you know, I think. That you know, not everything is is perfect, and there are some dark clouds on the horizon. But I think still, you know, most of the data now actually looks really, really good. So we've had, if you look at a, a six year time frame, which some of this sounds like cherry picking, right? You look at a six year time frame, and how many of the uh, uh, months in that six years was the unemployment rate below four percent? This has been like the best six years ever <laughs> for the labor market. Now we mm -hmm. had a really bad year in twenty twenty. <laughs> We had a pretty bad year in 2021, uh, but we're now back under 4%, which is, it's rare to be under that at all. And to be under that for like over half of the months in the past six years is really rare. It's also why wages have been have been growing so much uh, because when the unemployment rate is low, workers have a lot more power, whether they're in unions or not, they have a lot more power uh, in, in, a, in a real sense of, of bargaining or changing jobs. And so part of the reason wages have been strong and have been outpacing inflation over the last four years. Now, not the last two years, but over the last four years, wages have outpaced inflation. Part of that's because the unemployment rate, other than 2020, has been really, really low. Um, so that has that has helped workers a lot. Noted. Noted. Is that is that in part because there's fewer people working, or there house? You know, how, you know, you often hear the objection: well, the unemployment rate is low because fewer people are in the job uh, mm -hmm. market, so there's not as many people to measure. Yeah. Do you see that yeah. at all? That's that's a good question, but uh, the best way to look at that is to look at um, the number of people employed divided by the population. So if you look at that's called the employment rate rather than the unemployment rate. You can look at the employment rate. Um, and if you narrow it in on the people who are of working age, uh, this is another one that when, when Josh put that, that table up there, I had that one on there. It's like 80.7% and it was 80.6% or something. <laughs> If yeah, prime ago, age employment rate eighty point three percent in November oh. twenty nineteen, eighty point seven in November. Okay, I mean, it's a little higher, right? Now. So yeah, very. If you look at people of working age, you know, a slightly higher percent of them are working than were before the pandemic, and it's actually the highest it's ever been, other than the late nineteen nineties. Right, so percent of people of working age that are working is higher than it's ever been, other than the really great economy of the late nineteen nineties. Um, now, you know. There are lots of other things, right? So you can look at people outside that prime working age, right? Are you know young people working more or less, or elderly people, right? But you know that prime working age is, is I think, the best statistic to look at, um, and that took a long time to come back from the bottoms in 2020. But we are now back to what are essentially normal levels of working age adults who that have a job. Yep. And, and and just to add a little bit of context for our audio listeners, um, we showed this on the chart earlier, but multiple job holders are also at the same level. So not only are we seeing the same with, with prime age employee, you know, people that prime age employment, but we're seeing the same amount of people. It's not like we're at a bunch of people working part-time jobs or multiple jobs. It's the exact same level compared to before the pandemic, which is interesting to me. Um, so do you feel like this is simply due to the fact that our emotional state is lagging behind the data. I think you had indicated that a bit in the article that you wrote because I, let's just say anecdotally, and I don't know, you probably had a similar experience, Jeremy, when you were dealing with COVID. I remember, you know, going to the grocery store with my wife and my kids every couple of weeks and seeing the prices tick up over and over and over and over and over again. And that happened for years. I mean, until yep. 2022. 
And I did, because I'm so obsessed about this, I did kind of see a leveling off. I didn't see that same kind of acceleration. But I feel mm -hmm. like after two years of that, it was baked into the emotional state of our family just to expect that yeah. every time we go to the grocery store, we're going to have a higher bill. Um, and I don't think that's going to wear off, may not wear off between now and Election Day. But I'm curious as to whether or not you feel like, is that simply the reason? Or are there other economic uh, factors that you think might also kind of be at play here that maybe weren't covered in the chart that we, we looked at? Well, I mean, one thing you can do is you can look at, you know, just prices of groceries. If you adjust wages for just the price of groceries, uh, groceries have gone up more than wages the past four years, right? So if that's like the one, if that and gasoline are the one, the common prices you're observing, yeah, those have both outpaced wage growth over the past four years. Uh, but grocery spending, and I've got some other long historical charts on this, I mean, grocery spending is at historic lows as a percent of income. People spend about I don't know the exact number, but something like 5% of their income on groceries, right? So if you're focusing on the 5% of the prices you pay, you know, and if those have slightly outpaced wages, you might feel like, well, uh, these are the prices I observe. They seem to be going up all the time. I check the data and actually they are, right? You can look at lots of different food products and they are, they are, they have gone up, you know, wages have gone up, you know, a little over 20% and groceries have gone up 25%. So, you know, you're not wrong if those are the only prices that you're anchoring on and you're thinking about, you know, but that that is not where people spend most of their money, even though it might feel like it, right? That's the, that's the money that you're actually going and, you know, paying, you're buying it every week or every two weeks and you're actually putting money down rather than being, you know, automatically withdrawn from your checking account or something, right? So- it's a lot more, it's a lot more tangible, right? <laughs> I think another thing which which might, you know, this lag and people, you know, feeling good about it, maybe. I think as we start to see more grocery prices actually go down, right? Because a lot of people say, well, when are the prices going to go down? And the truth is for some things, they might never, right? Some things might stay high, but a lot of the uh, categories of grocery prices are now dropping. So a lot of things are lower than a year ago. Orange juice is not. Orange juice is up 36%. But there are a lot of things that are down and not just a little. A lot of things are down, you know, 10 or 20% compared to last year. So I think, you know, psychologically, as, as people start observing those and saying, hey, you know, first it happened with eggs, right? Well, eggs were like, about a year ago, eggs were like $5 a dozen. They're clearly lower than that now. Like, no one can deny this, right? Like, eggs are like half the price they were last year, right? And, you know, that was a weird thing. Like, orange juice is like the eggs of last year, right? Um, but I think as people start to see more things being clearly cheaper than they were a year ago, or in some cases, even two years ago, and it, maybe if we start to see, because food prices kind of have their own kind of wild fluctuations. Um, as people start to see some things maybe even coming down below what they were before the pandemic, I think that might get people to start realizing that, oh, you know, uh, these prices, these things are actually cheaper. You know, milk, eggs, maybe they're cheaper than they were two or three years ago. And they notice, and my wages are higher. Um, so I think as more people realize that, um, they might uh, you know, come to view the economy differently. You know, part of what I do, and I think what you guys do sometimes is say, well, you got to remind people of this, right? Like if you show them this, you know, maybe they won't believe you the first time you show them a chart, right? But they'll start to think, oh, okay, I got to think about overall, what's my my family's income? How much has that gone up? Overall, how, how much have prices gone up? But I got to think beyond just, you know, the price of orange juice, got to think about all groceries. No, I got to think about all prices, right? Look at not only gasoline, but natural gas and electricity. Those were up a lot last year. And now they're back down, right? And people are going to see lower heating bills this summer, right? As they as they pay their electricity or gas bills. And I think as people start to see those things, maybe that will change the mood. And again, 
these indicators of economic sentiment or consumer confidence, like they are improving a little bit. Um, uh, the December numbers we're starting to see are actually looking really good. I mean, nowhere near pre-pandemic, but like way better than they were a year and a half ago. So I think people are slowly coming around to this. Um, and I think, you know, as long as the economy keeps improving, which there's no guarantee it, it does. I mean, we have recessions from time to time and we could have one this year. Yep. But as long as we don't have a major economic downturn, as long as unemployment stays under 4%, uh, I think more and more people will see, ah, yes, prices, price increases have slowed down. Some things are dropping and my, my wages do keep going up. Um, and I think as people realize that, people will start to feel better about the economy. Um, you know, for a lot of people, again, the partisanship, a lot of people are concerned about, you know, what's happened during the Biden term and what will it look like on the eve of the election day? You know, I care about those things too, right? I care about politics too. But for me, you know, I care about what do things look like? How are people doing over the long run? Um, and, and, you know, how are people at all income levels doing over the long run? And that's kind of what I'm always looking to, knowing that not only does it influence the election, like politics does influence the economic system, right? I mean, the, the economic policies we have are determined by that. So I think, you know, I do care about that too. But, you know, I, I, I guess for me, I'm less concerned whether real wages have gone up, you know, since January 20th, you know, 2021, when Biden came into office, you know, are we better off? You know, that I think that's an interesting question because voters care about that. Yep. Um, for me, I'm interested in the long run trends and, and you know, are people really getting better over time? Um, and that's, you know, for that, you have to you, you have to look at the data. It's, it's hard. It's to, important to it's zoom hard, out. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it's hard for people to judge these things. Right. Like, are you better off than yeah. your parents? They ask people in service. Are you going to be better off than your parents? Like. This is just a really hard question, especially because, you know, if you're trying to compare yourself to your parents at the same age, like you were a child at the time, right? Like you didn't know what was going on. Right. You, you didn't know what your parents' income was. Like it's just very hard to judge, right? So yeah. these kind of sentiment things, I think, are they're important to know to know what people are thinking, but I don't think they really tell us a whole lot about how the economy is actually performing. Well, and your parents have 30, 40 years, my parents, 30 to I think 35 years longer of working. Uh, to be it to where they are now, so yeah. for me to expect to be at their level is 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 not is not lining up with reality. I think that there's you know kind of going back to um, back to perceptions. We don't talk about when gas prices are low nearly as much as we talk about when they're high. We when we buy to pay a lot of money for eggs or or orange juice, we talk about that. But when they go back down, we're not going to mention it to our friends that oh prices are down nearly as much as we talk about it when they get high. I also think there's some economic ignorance. Um, among people when they see the price of eggs go up and they see the price of orange juice go up and say, oh, that's that's in, because of inflation. When in reality, a lot of times it's because of massive supply chain issues, especially with eggs. I don't know exactly what's going on with orange juice, but with eggs, they had major factories go down uh, with the disease and they had to shut them down completely. And there was a huge backlog and, and uh, decrease in supply. Which had, obviously, inflation had something to do with it, but a large portion of it was really supply chain issues. Yeah. Yeah. And orange juice... And oranges is kind of that way too now. It's, but in the, even there's some supply chain issues in Brazil. But you know, I think that you know agricultural commodities have that aspect to them that a particular type of commodity might be having something weird going on, which is why you know in, in these measures of inflation we also talk about core inflation, which pulls out food and energy. A lot of people see that as a trick. Like, why are they pulling that out? Those are the those are the things I buy. Those are the only things I know the price of. Why are they pulling those out? Right. Uh, but because those are so volatile, and this is when, when the Fed is trying to see, you know, you know, it, have we, you know, got inflation down enough? They look to those core measures because, you know, there's some agricultural commodity that's going either up a lot or down. You know, gasoline goes up and down a lot 
because they're very volatile, uh, you know, that that's why these core measures of inflation exist in the first place, so that we can see, you know, what what actually is going on to most prices, not the volatile ones. But you know, most people either don't know about that, or or or, or they think it's a trick. Like some well, people really. That's so I've, I've talked to people who think that, oh, the CPI, the, the consumer price index doesn't include food. I'm like, no, no, it does. There's, there's, a, there's a sub version of it that doesn't, but there's a good reason for that. But, but the, the thing, it does include food. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. I feel like I remember <laughs> some stuff going viral about that a couple months ago. I always hear that every time the reports drop. Um, <laughs> very interesting. So, Jeremy, you touched on something that I think is a good transition to kind of the next section of the conversation, which is about kind of how people feel they're doing relative to their parents. Um, and you know, this story's mixed for everyone you talk to, they have different anecdotes on the situation. But one thing I'd say ties it all together. And this is the narrative I hear online as a millennial. I hear this all the time. You know, the boomers screwed over the previous, the next generations, millennials aren't accumulating wealth and millennials can't get ahead. And honestly, uh, from my perspective as a millennial, I do see that there are challenges, economic challenges. Like I do think housing is something that we should mm -hmm. touch on and how that oh, yeah. challenge, like what caused that, that is a problem. But I, one of the things that I think you've talked about and you've caught a bit of heat on it online is like, you know, if you look at the macro sense and per capita income for generation to generation and millennials are on track compared to relatively <laughs> to, to previous generations. So I wonder if you could help us unpack that. Um, how do you feel yeah. we are doing relative to uh, different generations? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's, it's great, great thing to talk about. And it's funny you say I've caught a lot of heat. I mean, I, I've actually gotten tons of, I think, positive feedback on this too, of, of oh, people yeah. saying, oh, this is the right way to show the data, you know? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, um, yeah, people have different reactions to good news. Yeah. But um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, the one thing I've looked into a bit and, and put together a number of, of charts and written a few blog posts about this is looking at uh, average wealth for each generation and then kind of lining up the generations at the same point in time, right? So Jonathan, you mentioned, well, my parents are 30, 40 years ahead of me. Okay, but what about when they were the same age as you, right? So let's let's get the data, let's look at, um, and and there is pretty good data that, that's collected on this by the by the Federal Reserve on, on what each household has for wealth at a point in time. Um, and, then, and then you can kind of disaggregate that, disaggregate that into, you can do it by race or, or gender, you know, gender of the head of household, but, you know, doing it by generation is what I've focused on. And, yeah. you know, when you do that, it's kind of striking when you, when you try to put the data, I mean, you gotta, you gotta, they give you like the, the aggregate data and they'll tell you like millennials hold, you know, X trillion dollars of wealth, you know, but you want to, first of all, of course, adjust it for inflation, but then you want to say, okay, we've got to put it on a per capita basis. So, you know, uh, the baby boomers, as their name indicates, are a very large generation, right? Gen X, the generation after them, which I'm a part of, uh, it's a smaller generation, right? And the millennials are a little bigger again. So just knowing how much in total each generation has, I mean, it might be interesting in some sense if, in terms of like political power or whatever. Sure. But um, I think in terms of how they're doing, you need to look at it per person, right? Or per household. So it's kind of striking though, when you when you put the data together and it doesn't go back super far, this data set, uh, it goes back to 1989, uh, but it is far enough back where you can get uh, you know, the median baby boomer and the median millennial at the same age. You can line them up. Uh, and when you do that, it's striking that all three of these generations, boomers, Gen X, and millennials, have almost the exact same per capita wealth at this point, where, at the age millennials are at right now. So they're all like lined up exactly almost. Um, now, you know, that's kind of the basic data. Yeah, for those watching the video, there's the chart, right? So um, kind of in the middle there at about age, you know, 35 or so is, you know, where the you know, median millennial is now. 
Uh, and they have almost exactly the same wealth as baby boomers, a little less than Gen X. Uh, but if you notice also, you know, going out, you know, Gen X and baby boomers, they track pretty closely throughout most ages. Uh, Gen X does uh, Gen X now. If you look at Gen Xers again, like me. Uh, look at the median Gen Xer. They actually have quite a bit more wealth uh, than the median, median baby boomer uh, mm -hmm. adjusted for inflation, uh, which I think is another thing people might be surprised uh, about. Um, but some would look at this and say, okay, well, all right, totally pessimistic view is wrong. We're not worse off, but shouldn't we expect each generation to get better off, right? If you're, if you're only as good off as the last two generations, okay, that's a different, you know, narrative than you're worse off. Uh, but, uh, wouldn't we expect them to get better off? I think, you know, there's a couple things going on here. Number one, we see with Gen X, they actually do when they get to their peak earning years, actually, they actually do exceed boomers. And I think that's for a pretty clear reason. Uh, and what, and that is that as generations have gone on, more of them go to college, which means they have higher earning potential over their lifetime, but more of them also acquire student debt, which is when they're young, going to make them look like they have a lot less wealth, right? You have this debt you take on and that having that debt might, you know, make it hard to do other things like buy homes. We can talk about homes too. That's a really important part of it. Um, but you know, you don't have any asset when you graduate from college, there's no asset on your balance sheet from that, right? Whereas when you buy a house, there is, you get a debt, but you get an asset, right? There's no asset. Uh, the asset is your future earning potential. And so what we see then over time, at least with Gen X, we saw this, is that they have higher earnings in each year and, and eventually their debt goes down enough where their income is now, meaning their wealth is increasing relative to the past generation. Um, millennials have an even higher level of debt than Gen Xers, people probably anecdotally know this, but it is true in the data. More of them have debt from student student loans, and it's at a higher level, even adjusted for inflation. Um, but even given that, they're already equal to baby boomers, even though they have a lot more student debt, even though it's harder for them to buy homes, which is another way of acquiring wealth, they're already caught up, right? So this suggests over their lifetime, even if we do nothing to fix housing, yeah. uh, millennials will probably surpass the other generations by the time that they are another 20 years older. Um, but the other the other optimistic, and this is a policy thing, right, is if we kind of fix or at least partially fix the housing situation, this could be really good for young people that haven't bought homes yet. A lot of millennials have, at least half of them now are homeowners, uh, but half of them, means half of them aren't, right? So uh, if we can, you know, and, and I know with uh, Kathy Reasonwitz, you, you talked a lot about this. I think you spent most of the podcast talking about yeah. NIMBYism and, and, and things related to that, but, um, uh, you know, that's another thing where I think policy needs to change. And, and this is weird because it's policy at the very local level in some cases, yeah. uh, there's not one federal law that we could pass and fix all this. Uh, but you know, that's another one where I think, I think if we fix that, then the case for millennials looking better than the last two generations is even stronger, right? Gen X right now is about 20% more wealth than boomers did at the same age. That's a lot of wealth. That's a lot more wealth. Um, millennials, I think I, I am optimistic. I mean, I think, I mean, every millennial I've met, you know, is to me the opposite of what the narrative is about them being lazy or entitled. Like, I don't see that at all. And I'm a, I'm a college professor and, yes. um, you know, although the, the students I teach now are no longer millennials in my, in my early career, I taught millennials now they're not right. Yeah. Uh, but like, I, I never observed that. I mean, you know, and, and I think that, um, I don't, I don't want to say never, but like I, that to me, that was not like the tenor I got from that generation as, as I was starting teaching. And it's not from the next generation, Gen Z either. Um, I think that they have so much potential. 
um, that they do have some policy headwinds, particularly the cost of housing. Like that is just the clear biggest one to me. Yeah. Uh, but there, there are other things too. Um, but I think that, you know, I am, I am optimistic, even if there are no policy changes, I am optimistic that if we were to pull up the data in 20 years, millennials are going to be looking so much better than baby boomers did at the same age. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to say that now in debate that, oh, in 20 years, it'll look good. Um, but you know, I mean, that's, that is what we saw for Gen X. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's assuming that we can uh, keep, keep the economic conditions good enough so that millennials yes, don't yes. In elect some sort of economic populace that try to bring us out of the, you know, isolation and isolate well, yeah. the world and reject. Yeah, there's um, <laughs> there's uh, this book, which, you know, maybe we can talk about, you know, there's this idea of wage stagnation over time. There's a great book by Michael Strain at uh, the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, the title of it is The American Dream is Not Dead, but the subtitle is something like, but populism could kill it, yeah. right? Mm. Uh, so, like, he presents an optimistic view of wage growth of the last 40, 50 years. Uh, but he says, like, we need to realize that it has been good, but also, like, it's not guaranteed. Like, none of this is guaranteed, right? Like, policy could improve on things like housing. Policy could get worse. I mean, it really could. And uh, I think in, in some countries, uh, you, you are seeing it get worse, especially in, you know, especially Eastern European countries where they've had more right-wing populists get in power either as head of state or just in their legislature. Like policy can get worse. Um, yeah. And I think that's why these conversations are important, not just to look at where we've been, but where we're going. Yep, yep. And making sure I, that, yeah. go for it, John. I think that people very much have a tendency to look at short-term view, right? And we talk about, you know, immediate price of, Gas going up, the price of eggs going up, orange juice, whatever it may be. Can you get what are your best examples of of prices or the cost of you know you mentioned five you know Americans are spending only five percent of their income on groceries. What are some of the best examples of where we are spending far less than we used to in the past to uh, to, to you know basic needs, supply basic needs? I got a blog post on this one too, but um, I mean, groceries are the clear one where we're spending just a lot less, right? At the household level, it, it's just gone way down and in the aggregate. Um, housing is one where it's pretty stable. I mean, not, not stable, but it's kind of 25 to 35% of an average household's income goes to housing. And it's been in that band for the last hundred years, right? So that hasn't gone down or up. Um, you know, other things though have gone up, um, you know, People spend more in education. People spend more in healthcare. Um, that's especially true if you look at the national level, right? In terms of what a household spends, they actually don't spend that much out of pocket on healthcare. But as a nation, we spend a ton on healthcare and a lot more, right? So those are things that have gone up. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, over the long run, that's one thing you can look at is, you know, are people spending less on something? But, you know, spending a household's income has got to go somewhere, right? It's 100% of it. If something's going down, something else has to go up. So I think the other thing to think of look at is to say, you can do these long run comparisons of have people's wages gone up more than prices for particular goods. Julian Simon was an economist who, who used to do a lot of these kind of pioneer of doing this approach. Like let's compare prices to wages, which seems obvious, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, to particular types of, of prices. But uh, there's a great new book, recent book called Superabundance uh, by uh, Marion Tupi and Gail Pooley. Gail Pooley. Uh, they, they also contribute to a website called humanprogress.org, which is a, it's a Cato Institute project. Great and website. they have a lot of data looking at, you know, you know, a dozen eggs, right? How many, you know, how much has, have eggs changed in price over the last say hundred years, but they say not in dollar terms, let's look at how many hours of work would have taken to buy those eggs a hundred years ago. 
how many hours of work would have taken a day. And just on the egg example, like the pr real price of eggs has gone down like 99%, right? In terms of how much time it takes to buy that dozen, it's like not, it's something like that. I don't want, maybe I'm wrong, maybe it's 90 No, and I, I thought it was the it same for like weed and meat and whatnot too. There was the same yeah. trend, R serious. Yeah, so you can look at all those food items over the past hundred years, which again, I, I like to look at this because I think people have a sense that, well, yeah, things are better than hundred years ago, but how much better? And if you look at all these different, you know, consumer goods, not just food, but all sorts of consumer goods, uh, the, you know, amount of time it takes to buy these, it's just gone down dramatically. Um, and these are massive improvements to standard of living. And I think this is a nice way of putting it to people because you can say, well, GDP per capita just for inflation is up, you know, six times. And they're like, okay, well, what does that really mean to me? But if you see, if you say, well, you know, it used to take an hour of work to buy this thing. Now it takes two minutes. Like, oh, okay, they they understand that, right? That the the work you do goes a lot further. Um, so I think looking at data like that, I think it is a good way to put things in perspective. You could do that over a short run too, right? You could do those comparisons over a short run. You could do it over four years, right? Because uh, you can say, okay, gasoline, the price of it is more than it was four years ago, but wages are up. So how do we compare them, right? One is you can adjust it for that, but also you can say, how many hours of work at the average wage would it take to buy a gallon of gasoline, right? And you can, if you look at it that way, it's actually very close to what it was four years ago. No, it's not true for everything, but that's a, that's another way we call those time prices. You can look at the time price. How much time does it take to buy something? Maybe that's another good way to look at things, especially in the long run when, you know, people people have a sense of, well, yeah, we know wages were lower in the past and prices were, you know, a can of beans was, you know, 25 cents, right? But okay, like, and now it's, you know, now it's three bucks, but okay, how much, how much have wages gone up? People have no idea because they weren't alive 100 years ago. Um, and then the further thing I like to do is the really broad picture is that, you know, that people take this for granted in some sense, right? Or, or not that they take it for granted, but they expect their wages to grow faster than prices. They expect their real wages to go up. Uh, and if it doesn't happen, they really mad at whoever's in power, right? I think that is an okay way to look at the world, but the broader perspective is that the growth in real incomes that we've seen in the past couple hundred years are unusual in human history. Right. If you go back in most countries past 100 years ago, but like if you look at the U.S. or Western Europe, if you go back two or 300 years ago, growth in, you know, real income was not the norm. There was not a, a, a secular trend, meaning you know, an upward trend over time in terms of real wages. They had essentially been flat for most of human history that we can we can find and that there were, you know, centuries and millennia of people's real incomes not going up at all or going up a little bit and then going down. And so that the overall trend was flat. This is despite the fact that there have been many improvements in technology and health over that time period too, but it didn't produce any growth in real income. Um, so, you know, I do this sometimes on Twitter, but I also, you know, I teach in class of, in economic history and we really try to emphasize this there is that, you know, the, the modern world, if we take that to mean the last two or 300 years is highly unusual in human history in many ways, but especially for economic growth, uh, that the incomes we have today are just so much higher than they were 100 or 200 years ago, and not just income on paper, like income in terms of what it can buy. And that is, uh, that is not the norm in history. And we need to then very carefully understand why that is. What is the set of both political and social policies that have allowed us to have this large amount of economic growth uh, because 
That has not been the norm historically, and it's still not the norm in a few places in the world today. Now, most of the world has finally caught on to growth, including much, most of sub-Saharan Africa, which you know until until really 30 years ago was not growing. Um, but most of the world has seen that growth. But again, like we said before, this is not guaranteed. Policy can move in a way that either slows down that growth or puts us back into a, a period of stagnation. And we should be worried about that. And as an economist, to me, that is the biggest long-term worry that we, 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 we do take it for granted. We forget why our economy performs so well compared to the past and that we start chipping away at things like property rights, at things like free trade, yeah, at things like, you know, a general climate that, that is, you know, accepting of business and of making money. Um, I think as we turn away from those things, and we might think in general on some of those, we think it's the left that turns against those, but increasingly we've seen a lot of people on the right. I mean, there's all this stuff lately with conservatives, you know, rejecting property rights in various small ways. And that worries me that like, they're, they're willing to give away this important foundation of economic liberty for temporary political gain because they don't want a Japanese company to buy a, a U.S. steel company. So therefore, we're going to take away their property right. Uh, this very much worries me that even the people that I think generally on the right are, are much more supportive of private property rights uh, are, are willing to, to, to junk a portion of it for, uh, you know, even if they, you know, maybe they think it's the right thing to do, but I, I think they don't even think it's the right thing to do. I think they just think that it's politically popular. Yeah, um, I think so, I think I think they are motivated by owning the libs. It's kind of like you know you saw a Trump a pro Trump Twitter account talking about how oh should we should we seize uh, Bill Gates farmland? It's yeah. like wait 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 what guys? Mm -hmm. You do not want to go down that path. The moment you start going down that path, guess what? You're not the only ones in in, in government. They're going to start seizing other things as well. Yeah. And, and Deidre McCloskey calls what the last 250 years, like great enrichment. And that's one of the things mm -hmm. that we, we think about is that's one of the reasons why we started Project Liberals, because we believe that liberalism is what caused that. It's basically what you had said, Jeremy. It's like liberal values inherently are what created this unprecedented, shockingly novel uh, economic yes. condition that we're living in. And it can all be lost within a matter of time. It's one of the reasons why I'm so intense, I feel like, uh, against the right is because I feel like on the left, I don't really expect them to have a real kind of comprehensive understanding of the nature of economic freedom. It's just based on my upbringing, seeing the way the left operates. On the right, I feel like inherently for a long time, we expected them to have that by default. Um, yeah. And now you're seeing them almost outright reject those values. And I, it's concerning for both John and I, because where is the voice in mainstream politics today that's speaking about liberal values and, and, and arguing for economic freedom? Because without that, the great enrichment can be lost, right? And so yep. uh, it's yeah, dangerous. It really can, yeah. I mean, it really can. And I think we, I don't hear, I don't want to be the doomer, right? But like, this is the doomer situation for me that we like, we, not that we forget that, but like we, we push so much against it, right? Against all those liberal values and, and, and that that reverses all the progress. And then, that, and then you know, then people start looking for someone to blame and, and, and that usually results in more illiberalism, right? Spiral. So I think this is, yeah. this is the worry, you know? And I'll say also, you know, there, there are, within the broad frame of liberalism, there are lots of different forms of, you know, government and democracy that can be supportive of that. I was looking at the data the other day. If you look at the, the, the most productive countries in terms of output per worker, they're essentially the U.S. and then the Scandinavian countries, right? Now, these two, the U.S. and the Scandinavian countries, you might think in many ways, we have radically different policies. And we do in some ways. People overstate it a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the, the Scandinavian countries, I think, 
heed much more towards what, you know, progressives in the U.S. would want. Yeah. I mean, that form of liberalism works as long as you have the core things right, right? You have private property, you have a tolerance for business, you have free trade, you have rates of taxation, which they're much higher there overall, but they do it in ways that it's not as, uh, you know, restrictive, right? They, they have very low corporate tax rates, they have, and, you know, things like that. Um, and they and the extent they have high taxes on on labor, they tie it very closely to benefits people are receiving. Now, maybe that's not my ideal world, but like it keeps the core liberal values in place, and that that allows you to have lots of varieties of liberalism. But but there are some some core aspects to it that we can't lose sight of. And I think in the U.S. there are many on the right and the left that want to you know get rid of some of those uh, without realizing they're part of a package that promotes economic freedom, but also personal freedom in many ways. Yeah. I think that liberalism is an extremely resilient system. It does have its limits, but I think if we can, if, if we can maintain those core values at the very center of them, I think it can, it can withstand a lot of things around it. It can support many different systems around it, different types of healthcare systems, et cetera, et cetera. The main important thing are those free trade, private property rights, um, and basic, basic individual freedom to, to, to trade. I think that, you know, you talk about Eastern European countries, Losing that, I think the move now seems to be that they are trying to preserve the liberal economics while having more of these kind of impositions on personal freedoms. Mm -hmm. Do as an economist, what do you when you look at that? You say, okay, that could that can probably work, but we're you know that as long as they preserve some of these economic freedoms, they can probably maintain their success. Or do you look at that and go, no, that's that's they're going to they're going to have long term consequences uh, as a, as a result of that. Yeah, I think it would depend on the particular policies, but I think in, in general, it, it's very hard to restrict uh, personal freedoms for a long time and, and preserve the economic freedoms. Um, so, I mean, there's been a, a bit of research done. I mean, Hayek and, and Friedman both had kind of general ideas about the relationship between economic and personal freedom, but economists since then have kind of tried to test these things, right? Can you be stable in, you know, having low on one freedom and, and and, and high freedom in another area. And there are a few areas that we, few countries or, or regions of countries we might call like, uh, you know, liberal art autocracies, but, but most of those also, they still generally reflect, re respect personal freedoms. I mean, Singapore is an example where they probably have, I would say quite a bit less personal freedom than we do in the U S but still maintain economic freedom. Um, but I think that one is, that's like the unique example where they do that. Uh, in, in most places, like if you look in Hong Kong, uh, where they for a, a while did have a lot of economic freedom without much personal freedom, well, they had much more personal freedom than the rest of China. Yep. Uh, th there was an increasing demand for it, for more personal freedom. And then that was cracked down on. Right. So I think that uh, people don't just want economic freedom. They don't just want to be rich. Right. They, they want to be free in lots of other ways. And, and once you're rich. And, and a lot of these countries, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong, are, I think, are the best examples of countries that had really high levels of economic freedom, and they grew, became very rich. And then people start, you know, demanding other freedoms, and then are you going to give them to them or not? Uh, and and then the crackdown might involve cracking down on economic freedom too, which is always the, the worry in terms of preserving that liberal economic growth. A, li a liberalism always needs the bad guy. And guess what? It's the people and, you know, people who are opposed to you politically, the wealthy businessmen who you don't like, those are who you're going to go after. Well, how do you go after them? You go after them through economic, economic means. Yeah. Well, by restricting economic freedom inherently. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, we've got 
five, ten more minutes before we've got a break. There was one other topic I wanted to talk about, if you guys are comfortable with changing gears a little bit before we wrap up. Um, and that was about crime. Uh, we've touched on, the, we've touched on uh, the generational divide. We've touched on the cost of living, the economic conditions. Another thing that I hear all the time is that violent crime is on the rise. I see these photos of cars getting broken into everywhere on Twitter. Everyone's freaking out about how uh, the world's going to <laughs> crap in Joe Biden's America. Is cr like where are we at with crime relative to previous to the, to the big picture, um, Jeremy? Where do we yeah. stand with that? No, it's a great question. There's there's a short run version. There's a long run version. And then there is the anecdotal version, right? The, oh, I saw a car getting broke into, so crime must be bad, right? Yep. Uh, so here's, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I try to rely on other experts. Uh, one of my favorite ones to follow is Jeff Asher. Uh, follow him on Twitter, and he has a Substack too. He's really good at breaking down the data and explaining it uh, on crime. But the truth is that it, it, in 2020, 2021, and 2022, crime is way up. I mean, compared to the baseline, which most people, the baseline is the past 10 or 20 years, crime is way up. Um, that's absolutely true. It was true for homicide. It was true for other crimes uh, that, that we measure and that we can measure well. Right? Petty crimes are sometimes hard to measure. They might go underreported, but, you know, major crimes, you know, rape, robbery, carjackings, right, car theft, um, all those were way up during the yeah. pandemic. And I don't think that the social scientists that study this fully know why, but we do know it was up. Like, this is not a reporting thing. Um, like, it clearly was up. What's going on... It seems like it would be if you'd lock everyone in their homes and take yeah. away their jobs and stuff. Sorry, not to cut you off, but I think yeah. it feels natural. Although know, in like... 2020, people are mostly in their homes, so yep. <laughs> maybe it's hard to convert people in their homes, right? But um, uh, So the data we have, though, for it kind of went up and up and up. 2022, as best as I can understand from the data, kind of peaked, right? So 2021 and 22 are about even, and 2023 has just come way down uh, dramatically in terms of homicides, which are, of course, the biggest crime, but also the, you know, the, mo the most serious crime, but also the, the one that's least likely to be underreported, right? Homicides are way down, um, and, and the, data, the year is not quite over, and the, the data always comes in a little late, but all the early data suggests homicides are way down, as well as most categories of violent crime that those are all those are all down as well um now this is not true everywhere uh one city where it's not true is washington dc washington dc is not down it's actually up <laughs> it's continued to go up so if you know if someone is you know a, a, someone you know in the dc bubble right who has a lot of twitter followers like i've seen crime everywhere like it's true you are correct in yeah. dc and, and a few other states but it's mostly just, actually mostly just dc Crime is continue to be elevated and continues to go up. And I don't know exactly what's going on, but that, that's quite clear in the data. Um, and, and also interesting kind of deviation from those trends is car thefts continue to be up, but that's actually due to some technological thing with Kias and Hyundais, where right. the thing where the key fob has to be in the car, like somehow that's easy to disable or something. I don't know. But there's tons of auto thefts are still up. It's especially true in DC too. Um, at, but anyone's got it. I don't want to bash these brands because they're actually great brands, but like they got to fix this. <laughs> Kia's and Hyundai thefts are way up as apparently they're easy to steal. And there was a viral TikTok video about it, apparently. That yeah. Made that drove so, so like that. So like if your perception of this is, well, if you live in DC and you're focusing on cars being stolen, it looks like crime's way up. And that, that is true. Right. But that's like the orange juice, right? 
orange juice price is way up. You got to look at it all. You got to look at the whole U.S. Um, if you do that, crime has started to come back down. Violent crime actually looks like from the early data, and it's early and there might be reporting issues, but 2023 looks like it might be back to 2019 levels in terms of violent crime. Uh, homicide is not quite back down to 2019 levels, but that's that's a huge improvement, right? Now, that was a lot of crime that happened those years. The other thing, though, I know we're getting towards the end, the other longer-term perspective I'd like to bring in, and this isn't even that long, if you go back to the 1980s and early 1990s, crime was through the roof. And not only was it high, it was increasing. And everyone who studied this, this is a major error, I think, on the people who studied it, they thought it was going to keep going up, Right. The murder rates were going to keep going up and that crime was just going to get worse and worse, especially in cities. Uh, after about 93 or 94, it started coming down. All categories of crime, but especially murder. And so the baseline that people are used to, you know, 2019 or the decade before that, that was a huge improvement. Like crime rates cut in half from what they were in the 1990s. Some people are like, oh, yeah, the 90s, man, it was so great. The 90s crime was out of, it was out of control. And, and a lot of cities got under control. There's different, again, theories about wh which methods work the best to do that. And that's outside my area. But um, I know it's something that the criminologists and sociologists still debate. Uh, but uh, clearly crime went down for reasons we probably can never completely understand. But the baseline that we're used to is like so much better, which is great. We want things to get better. Uh, but there was like a, a crime spike it started in the 70s and kind of peaked in 1990, the early 90s, and places like New York City were the epicenter of this, right? Like crime was out of control there. Crime in New York City is like extremely low levels right now compared to, I mean, overall, the murder rate, I think, got cut in half in the U.S. In New York City, it was like a tenth or something. It was some crazy reduction in the murder rate compared to the 90s. It did go up again in the pandemic, but we're, but no city, I don't want to say no city, but but very few cities are anywhere near what they were in the early 90s in terms of murder rate and violent crime. So that's maybe the silver lining. Crime went up for three years during the pandemic. It was really high, but it's coming back down. And it was not, we never got back up to the 1990s peak. Um, so that's maybe the silver lining to what was clearly a bad social and, and legal trend the past few years. Um, that seems to be getting better too. Um, yeah. I don't know how that'll feed into the narrative of how the world <laughs> is doing, but but that does seem to be getting better. Um, so whenever someone posts a TikTok of a, of, of, of uh, you know, stuff's locked up at CVS, you know, yeah, but well, murder's down. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and if you look at, if you look at historical murder rates going back 200, 300, 400 years ago, you can see some, like, 10 times higher murder rates in some yeah. areas. So you can, over time, it has come down. I think as far as the anecdotal, you know, I saw a crime, it must be up. One of the, uh, uh, one thing I heard once, and I don't know where I heard it, but um, when the advent of cell phones came out, what did we see go up and what did we see go down? Well, we saw uh, more police officers beating people up and we saw fewer fewer people were reporting alien sightings. It's not because there's a change in level of either of those things. It was just that when we had cell phones, we, we could actually record an event in front of us. We were able to record what had been happening already, or in the case of aliens, not been happening this whole time. So perception is a weird thing. How we, you know, how we perceive the world, how it, on an individual level or as a societal level, we, we have to learn how to, we have to, teach ourselves how to adapt, you know, bring in that information, absorb that information and actually interpret it and apply it to the real world. Cause I don't think, I think as humans, we're too anecdotal. We want, we want to hear the, the, the gossip, the, the, we want to rely on, Oh, our neighbor said that they saw somebody sneaking around the neighborhood type of type of, of story, as opposed to the overall broad crime data. 
No, that that that's the normal human reaction to it. But I think you know, good journalism on this does the does the both. They're like, here's the anecdote, and like, does that match up with the data? Sometimes it does, right? But sometimes it doesn't. So I think you know, when people are writing about these things or, or talking about it on TikTok, like, I think it's useful to like. I, I mean, I try to, as you guys know, I try to like give the best context for it, yep. and that doesn't always paint a rosy picture. But I think it often paints a better picture than 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 the anecdote does. Well, we can we can end it there. I think that's a really great way to close. Um, again, I I uh, I appreciate you joining us. I think that again, it's always inspiring when you can kind of take a step back and look at it, put things in context. And I think uh, you've been uh, you do a great job of doing that online. And I really appreciate you taking an hour to talk to us today. Um, you have anything you want to pitch, Jeremy, other than uh, economistwritingeveryday.com, which I would recommend to the audience to check out? Um, anything that you want to tell our audience to check out? You know, nothing of mine necessarily to pitch, but I think a website that's really useful if, if I know a lot of people know about it, but if you don't, it's called Our World of Data. It's a really yeah. great resource for finding lots of objective data, especially for doing comparisons between countries or comparisons over time. Um, I highly recommend if you're looking for where can I find objective data. Now, a lot of this isn't like up to the minute, but like if you want to find good objective long run data, it's called Our World in Data. And they have tons of data on there, but they have this uh, uh, one essay that's called like the short history of global living standards, where they look at six broad trends over the past 200 years and show you know, what does the data say? And, you know, how do we interpret that? You know, what might have caused this? They look at, you know, economic trends and health trends and, and trends of democracy and, and education and, and show how these have all gotten dramatically better over the last 200 years. Uh, but they do it, you know, with a nice visualization or a couple of them and, and just a simple description of what's the data we're looking at and, and, and how does that explain it? But, you know, this whole website, I mean, they have literally tens of thousands of, of data sets on there, but it's really easy to access and they explain it really well. So our world and data, I will pitch that. I have nothing to do with them other than I steal their data all the time. Yeah, we steal it. I do too. <laughs> oh, well, uh, another call out. Follow Jeremy on X or Twitter at J-M-H-O-R-P. Um, but again, Jeremy, thank you for taking the time. We appreciate it, everybody. If you want to learn more about Project Liberal, go to projectliberal.org. Uh, but we will see you guys soon on the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.